Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. I'm recording this in a very sunny, very warm Dublin today. We've got a bit of a heatwave thing going on, which kind of leaves me a little bit conflicted. I think it's fair to say, you know, uh, on the one hand, warm weather is great. Being out in the garden, barbecuing, drinking a beer. These are good things. But then it's like, is the earth actually on fire and basically everyone is going to die and children that are growing up right now are, are doomed to a dystopian future in which there is an ongoing battle to survive because, well, water is important and there isn't any and large swathes of the landscape are permanently on fire and other kind of Mad Max shit that goes on in my head. And of course, it's all our fault. It's our fault. We insisted on using plastic straws. And if only we hadn't been so wedded to plastic straws, the world would be safe. The environment would be would be fine. And the fossil fuel companies that are raking in billions and billions and billions and putting everybody's heating and electricity and gas bills up, even though they're making billions and billions and billions. It's not their fault. It's us. Because we, we use plastic straws. Hope you're all happy with yourselves. Anyway, I think I might just get another beer and sit in the garden. How about that? How about that for a podcast? I do have a good show for you today all the same, though. In a little while, we're going to be talking stats with the man who knows more about stats than pretty much anybody else. 
You probably follow him on Twitter. Maybe some of his stats make your eye go, that's not a good stat. I don't want to read that. But stats are just facts. And so a little bit later on, I will be talking to Orbino from Opta. He'll be here to talk about the development of the uh, stats industry, the way it's impacted football and lots more. Uh, That was just a little uh, croak in my throat. I wasn't emotional about how stats have have impacted football. I've also got a little bit of a giveaway for you as well. So that's coming up right after this, which I'm just going to get on with. And my first guest today from The Guardian to talk Arsenal bits and pieces is Nick Ames. Hello, Nick. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Very well. Thank you very much. Let's just go back a week or so to talk about Crystal Palace, you know, in a broad context. After what happened last season, I think it was really, really important for Mikel Arteta to get off to a good start this season. There's more preparedness. You can see that the squad is... Uh, better in better shape anyway uh, maybe still a couple of things to do but it's it's in better shape or was in better shape going into that first game I mean how important of course every every win is important every game every three points etc cetera, etc cetera. but but aside from that just the sort of anticipation that it built up over preseason, getting that um, underway with a win at, at Selhurst Park was really important yeah you're right. it was massive and um I um, I actually I think it was middle of last week spoke to the to the Arsenal supporters trust in a um, in a meeting of theirs and and I said that it was the most ready that I'd seen an Arsenal squad and and club in general I think for a season in in my fifteen years of being involved around the club in different capacities and um and so after that you think is it all going to go um go wrong two days later and and I think the fact that it didn't and also the fact that it happened at a hunting ground that has obviously got a bit of a mixed recent past hasn't it there was, mm. there was um, the game very recently in April where Arsenal didn't show up there was the, the famous I think Hector Bellerin one where um, where Palace flashed them again a few years ago there have been others too where, where Zaha has given them a roasting the fact that none of that happened this time even though there were the slightly predictable maybe second half wobbles and a couple of times where they got lucky I just think it was so important psychologically both for the people mm. in, inside the club but also obviously for, for the fan base because then you don't get that feeling of here we go again which I know <laughs> everyone has had so many times and I think Arsenal maybe more than any other kind of top club maybe apart from Man United in, in recent years, and it's had so many false dawns. And at the moment, this doesn't look like one. And if you're coming away off the back of another defeat where things haven't quite worked out, or at least scratchy draw, mm. there's still question marks. But now, you know, Leicester at home in a couple of days' time, and that place is going to be bouncing. Um, I, I'm not going to go into any spoilers on All or Nothing or anything like that, but but you make an interesting point about sort of the mood. And I think Mikel Arteta works quite hard from what we've seen in that series. He works quite hard to try and manage the psychology of the team. Like there are times where you think he's going to give them a bit of a roasting and he tells them how proud he is of them. And there are times where, you know, he flips his lid and understandably so because the performance and what have you isn't, isn't up to scratch. So I do think that aspect of it is really quite interesting that, you know, the, the transfer market was good. The, the preseason games were good. The mood was good. And then it would have been slightly in the toilet if, if that hadn't worked. And, 
it's an aspect of Arteta's work that I, I don't know that it, maybe we haven't discussed it because we haven't necessarily seen it as much. And you can tell a little bit from the way he speaks in public and the way he talks about what he wants from his team and what he's what he's there to do. But when you get that little behind the scenes look as well, the the sort of the various ways in which he tries to manage the mindset of the players pre and post game is very interesting. Completely, and I mean we can go back to almost a year ago after those first three defeats and, and and the way that before that Norwich game, he told the players they'd given him his best ever week of his career, which was a line he also gave to us for media at the yeah. time. And, and you totally believe it. And you, you would think that, well, maybe you would only lazily think it, but you might think it from the outside that a manager would be absolutely doing his nut at the time. And, um, and actually it had been a really uplifting experience and he made sure that sure that it was one for his players in terms of rebounding from that from that adversity so look i've i've got little idea of specifically what talks have gone in gone on this week in the mm. dressing room it wouldn't surprise me if if there's been a bit of the flip side and he's concentrated on on what didn't go so well in the second half against palace where we did see a few old things creep in dropping a bit too deep and a couple of sloppy chances created and stuff but, um, but but I think you're right. He always knows, always seems to know, to know the best way to pitch it. And I know there's been quite a few send-ups of a lot of us stuff on the playing video. Again, no spoilers, but the stuff that's been out there particularly, like sure. you'll never walk alone and, and that kind of thing. But I think his methods do get the right response and he's able to hold a room, which is so, so important. Yeah. The second half against Palace, I think one of the things that stood out to me was how does he change it in this context? How does he try and get back on top of the game? I don't think Palace were necessarily battering down the door or anything like that. And looking at the bench, you're going, hmm, I'm not quite sure if this is, you know, this is not a Nicolas Pepe uh, scenario, for example, one nil up away from home and you're you're maybe going to have to hang on a little bit. He did make two like-for-like changes with uh, Tierney for Zinchenko and, and Eddie for um, Gabriel Jesus. But this weekend, um, it does look as if the bench is going to be stronger. Takahiro Tomiyasu, Emil Smith-Rowe, Fabio Vieira all in full training as far as we can see from the pictures. And um, we don't often get much more than that because he's he's quite reluctant to share fitness information in the way that, that Arsenal did in the not-too-distant past where you get like a rundown of the players and you say, this guy, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is. He doesn't really seem to want to share that information very much. Like he said uh, before the Palace game, yeah, three of the four will probably be um, in contention or in the squad. And it was like, well, which three? And he said, you'll have to wait and see. And there was only one of them. But um, those players, and and particularly Smith-Rowe and Vieira, as options in games where you're trying to change the dynamic, whether you're leading ahead, whatever it is, they feel like important pieces of the puzzle this season. Yeah, John Smithrow in particular, I think, is one of those players who we've all seen is able to get you through the gears, isn't he? Like mm. when 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 a game's maybe getting a bit slower, a bit broken up, or you've been sucked a bit deeper, which did happen. So has Park, and, and look, Palace are a good side. It's going to happen to most people. Um, but someone like Smithrow, he'll he'll pick the ball up, he'll he'll burst you up a pitch thirty or forty yards, or he'll you know make a make a nice pass or a charging run, and it will just take that bit of pressure off and maybe just add an extra ten percent of tempo to the rest of the team. So I think having that extra bit of energy, extra bit of life, and also physicality coming off um, off, off the bench is going to be very important. And I think they like that a bit at Palace. And I 
I think it was lacked a bit at centre forward too. Um, I mean, Gabriel Jesus was fantastic, and I think in that first half hour, mm. as I'm sure has been talked about a lot by all of us in, um, in the last six, six or seven days. Arsenal played some of the football that we're going to want to see over the next nine months. And if they keep producing it, they're going to be right up there. We can all agree on that. But I did think there were times where the ball didn't quite stick with Gabriel Jesus up top in that second half. And that is where no fault appears because he can't do literally everything. That's <laughs> where you maybe need that plan B centre forward. You're, you're kind of Olivier Giroud type, if you like. Someone who can just weather a bit of the nonsense that you take. Someone who can make it stick, hold it up, lay it off go down for a foul or something like that. So I thought we maybe saw, I know the centre-forward position and, and, and the depth there has been quite a hot topic in recent weeks and I've been quite a proponent of the fact that you can just stick Martinelli in there and I absolutely love him mm. if you have to. But I do wonder whether one thing we saw was that for those difficult situations where you can't really get out, having your Smith Rose and something like that is very good. But having a centre forward who can maybe take a bit more of a rough and tumble and make that ball stick mm. is also going to be a useful thing that, that they could maybe look to address before the end of the month. That, I mean, that was something that came up in last week's show when we were talking about you know what people were looking forward to and maybe what people still wanted to see in the squad. And there's a lot of talk about a winger because we knew there was a pursuit of Rafinha. There's been a lot of talk about central midfield because we've been strongly uh, linked with Yuri Tielemans, which is an interesting one ahead of a game against Leicester. You know, I'm, um, I'm wondering why if Arsenal were really, really interested in Tielemans, why they wouldn't do it before you play Leicester. Um, but that idea of a, of a center forward, uh, a different type of option up front, because Gabriel Jesus and Eddie and Keddie aren't exactly the same player, but physically they're in the same ballpark, right? There isn't that presence up front, but I mean, do you think that is something that Mikel Arteta is actively considering, given that there hasn't been a single link to a forward of that type? Well, there was uh, Skamaka, wasn't there? He was being linked around, but I'm not sure how serious the, the interest was. I mean, personally, I'd be surprised if another striker came in before the end of the window, but um, maybe you've got some other information on that. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously Calvert-Lewin, we know, was a longish-term target. Yeah. He he can do that kind of job probably better than most. And obviously, um, he knows the league very well. Um, I haven't heard any names that are hot in terms of centre-forwards at the minute, and there's not much going around. So I'm not... Well, I don't think it's a top priority, but put it that way. I think yeah. there are at least two other priorities, and we, we probably know what they are, midfield and wing. Um but it just crystallised for me a little bit the second half at Palace that it could could just be a nice extra thing to have really mm. have experience here that some somebody who 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 knows the league who can just sort of get you out of trouble here and there. Um, but players like that are hard to find because you're also seeking a player who realistically has to know they're not going to be starting very much. Yeah, because they're a horse for a course, aren't they? So you've either got to go back and find a 36 year old Olivier Giroud who's happy to be wheeled off for 20 minutes every week. Or, or, or find someone else who who, who is, is happy to do it. And it's not, not an easy transfer to make. So, yeah, I think it's something they could do with, frankly. I've changed my mind a bit, but I don't think it's imminent and there definitely aren't too many names being tossed around in my ear. No, I mean, a lot of the business that's going around, of course, this week is, is outgoing business. Lucas Torreira is gone. Pablo Marie, gone. Um, so they're they're trimming the squad down, which they have to do because the squad is is way too big. Um, I mean, I'm curious what you think about 
two players I saw them linked with, um, it was said that Arsenal will consider loan moves for Ainsley Maitland-Niles and, and Reese Nelson. Maitland-Niles in particular really surprises me because, look, I know he he sort of plateaued a little bit, if that's the right way to say it. The loan to Roma was okay, didn't go that well. Um, he wanted to go last summer. But it's not long ago that he was in the England squad. It's not that long ago that Wolves were offering £20 million for him, reportedly, and people were saying, I'm not sure that's enough for a young English international. And here we are, you know, going into the second week of the season, Maitland Niles wasn't even on the bench for the game against Crystal Palace. Um, Why is there nobody in for him? Why is there no concrete interest from you know, a a newly promoted club or is it a mid-table Premier League club who could use an English player of his talent and versatility and somebody who realistically, well, realistically is maybe not the right word, but I would have thought could generate some revenue for Arsenal in, in the transfer market. I know he's only got a year left on his contract, but that also makes him maybe a more attractive uh, option for any potential buyer. He's he's in danger, isn't he, of being... Mm. One of those players who you think is always 19 or 20 and then you turn around one day and he's 31 and you're like, God, where, where's his career gone? Like, yeah. <laughs> and we, we, we can all think of players like that. Um, it's a strange one. And yeah, if you look back to the FA Cup run a couple of years ago and some of the performances he put in, I, I think he was out, out on my left, wasn't he? Left and wing we, back, yeah, yeah. And you, and you really thought this could be the making of him. I mean, how old is he now? 23, I think, 24, around that. Um, but he's never really nailed down a, a, a position. And I think he's never been kind of offered the position that he really wants um, to be playing in for someone, which is mm. in, in, in the centre, getting on the ball, that kind of thing. And at Arsenal, there's always, there's always been a sense wherever he's been put. And I don't think he's done much of a bad job for Arsenal when he's played and sometimes done a very good job. I think he's never long-term been viewed as better than a person whose place he is taking, temporarily mm. or otherwise. I mean, obviously, there was a time when it looked like the right-back spot might be going um, going, going, begging for him, and for whatever reason, he, he didn't really seize that. I don't think he really wanted it. I think maybe in some ways he might have had a few ideas above his station in terms of where he should be playing. But you would think there'd be more people in. You would, you would think everybody would just be keen to get a permanent deal done now and he'd be able to get a place cemented because he's definitely good enough to play in the Premier League. I'd say may, maybe lower half. Mm. I think because he's so versatile, we don't necessarily know quite how good he is. When have we seen him have a run of 30 games in central midfield or something like that for a good club? Never. But he's got that pedigree. Got that England cap, which I, I think maybe, I don't know, I'm not quite sure he's quite up to that level. That was just one of those that happens at a certain time. But yeah, surprise. And I think it's a bit exhausting for everybody. The player as well, if he gets gets loaned out again for another year, and at this point in his career, and after such a long time at Arsenal, can't find a home. It's It feels like a bit of a waste, but I don't quite know how you solve that waste, to be honest, because I'm still not quite sure what he's best at after all these years. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, the versatility is... Um an advantage and a disadvantage as well in some ways. Um, but, you know, I am I am surprised. He's 25 at the end of this month and, you know, he needs to he needs to go somewhere and play regularly at this point in his career. 
I just don't quite. And there hasn't even been a rumor or a sniff of of anybody being being in for him. I mean, similarly, what about Reese Nelson? Um, you know, a, a guy who I think probably should have gone on loan uh, the season before last and didn't and wasted a year of his career, or a year of development and took a little bit of time to get settled in at, at, um, at Feyenoord last season. Um, but again, a year left on his contract, 22 years of age, got some skills, got some talent. I mean, is this not the kind of deal that Arsenal, I mean, there's been quite a bit of criticism of, of the way Arsenal have sold players um i have that in inverted commas because uh, not all of them have been uh sold but this is the kind of player who should get something into the club you know um after coming through the academy and all the rest um you know if arsenal do buy that winger he's you know very much on the outs yeah and if um if i look back to arteta's first couple of months in charge there was no player he bigged up more than Reese Nelson, funny mm. enough. I don't know whether, whether you remember, remember yeah. that, and maybe listeners do. He, he, I remember being in the press conference where he, he, he didn't really stop for five minutes and was just like, you know, it's totally up to Reese, but, um, but if he does it, as I tell it, he, um, he could do anything. And mm. you kind of, in your head, you're making a few parallels with the work that he did with, you know, Raheem Sterling, people and people like that, and thinking this could happen. Mm. Um, and then I think Nelson didn't he score a winner? Was it in the FA Cup against Leeds? I think it was. I think he scored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think it was a bit scrambled, but you. So it wasn't like he cut in and whacked one in from the edge of a box or something. But you thought, okay, this could be a bit of a lift off if I'm getting my chronology right here. Mm. Um, and it's just not happened. Now, I've I've not heard anything to suggest that Nelson's a bad egg or anything like that mm. absolutely not I've, I've i've interviewed him before and met him he's he's a very nice guy very motivated i think and clearly a fantastic player but again it's just one of those where i think the management judged that something in terms of clicking in in into the system mm. and quite working something between years something about how you, how you plug in maybe a bit like how they view nicolas pepe now you know it's like more more extreme example but you're right when Arsenal are getting a homegrown player to that kind of point they should either have him in the team or be making a seriously good deal of him mm. and again there's nothing that I know of in the offing I think, I've, um, I think as you said his loan spell um, last season got better didn't it got better and better and yeah. obviously he's um, got, got experience doing quite well in Germany two years ago there's a massive talent there and it would beg a belief that especially when you look at some of the fees that go around for other players. But again, somebody lower half of Premier League, top of championship, doesn't have a go. But also, I'm not quite sure what kind of fee Arsenal are looking for and whether based on what he ha he has produced for the club so far, yeah. whether what they're looking for is realistic. And I think that might be an issue. You mentioned Nicolas Pepe. Um, what, what do Arsenal do with this situation? It doesn't seem healthy for player or club but he's on pretty big wages um he fits kind of into the category of player that edu spoke about um in his fairly candid interview where he said if you've got a guy who's 26 and he's not performing and he's got years left on his contract and he's in london you know it's impossible to move these guys um you know the wisdom of saying that out loud while you're trying to move 
guys like that. Um, this is maybe another debate, but it is one of those situations where I, I think everybody would be happy for something to happen. But as far as we know, nothing's happening. Yeah, he's a, another victim of the Arteta bigging up curse, isn't he? Because I, I remember in February or March, he, he was a different Nico. Um, <laughs> and, and then we saw his sub-appearances at the end of the season, which were pretty awful. No, that's that's a bit unfair on, our, on Arteta, who I, who I know has really, really tried and been patient and got into him and made a lot of effort with, with Pepe Arteta has. Um Look, you're never going to get your money back for Nicola Pepe. It's that is a totally sunk cost. I think the club know that that part has to be written off, and now it's just a question. I think. I mean, you're not going to pay him off or something like that. I don't think because that would be extraordinarily expensive. Mm. But you're going to have to look for the best possible loan. Always struck me that he'd end up somewhere on loan, like Roma or somewhere in Syria. That you know, wanted to get back to some former glories and sign an expensive player on a temporary deal. So I, I would have thought something like that, a sort of loan move to Syria would be the obvious destination. But, mm. but, but once again, as with the other two players we've spoken about, it is really quiet out there in, t- in, in terms of speculation and, and information about where they might end up. But I think it's a deal that Arsenal will have to do somehow because if they want to get another pricey winger in mm. another winger who competes particularly with Bakayo Saka who I think needs that competition um, you're probably going to have to either use Nicola Pepe more regularly and forget about it or get Nicola Pepe out but I think it's going to have to be some kind of loan deal where they're realistic about what wages can be taken on as well I think this is one where Arsenal are going to have to get real yeah. quite frankly cut their losses admit it's not worked out for, for reasons that I think we've talked about quite a quite a bit down the years, like going right back to the manner of his recruitment and just admit that this was a mistake. Yeah, well, let's see. They've got just over, what, three weeks, three weeks thereabouts to try and make something happen before the, the transfer window closes. Just finally, Nick, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Granit Xhaka because you interviewed him during the week. There was a, a bit of a Granit Xhaka media blitz where I think he sat down with a number of you guys and, and spoke, um, you know, about... Uh, I think one of the interesting things about Xhaka, um, people might like it, some people might like it, some people might not like it, that he is pretty upfront and pretty blunt and pretty honest and he's a fairly take-me-as-I-am, take-me-or-leave-me kind of a a guy. But I, I thought the stuff that he talked about, and it's not the first time he's talked about it, but the relationships between fans and uh, players and how really the only thing that, fancy is the 90 minutes they don't see training sessions they don't see how players react when they lose we get a bit more of that now because we've got the all or nothing thing to go on and you can see a a little bit as much as uh, they want to show you but that idea is quite interesting because otherwise the only interaction that you have between supporters and players is via social media the ones who are happy enough to leave their comments on or leave their dms open or whatever it might be and as we know um you know you can find all kinds of um extremes of opinion some of them um not particularly palatable and and the sort of abuse that's that's given to players online um, you know, nobody should be uh, standing over that. But but this idea that doing things which humanizes the players um, rather than them just being these on-pitch robot guys, I think is a, is a very good one. It is. And what do you get if you 
can't see or hear information about something or someone beyond that 90 minutes, you get a black hole. And yeah. so then, um, then you get, it's not a criticism of anybody in particular, I think it's human nature. You then get wild opinions and speculations and that kind of thing that then get run with and become truth. And people start making extrapolations and surmising about people's personalities. And the Xhaka is a good example of that because, you know, we all know what happened in the Palace game a few years ago. And if you're just watching that, then you come away and think this guy is an absolute F word over this. Yeah. But it's never, never, never that simple. Um, and I think in Granite's case, especially, as he said, as he just said, you take him as you find him. He, um, he is um, ju- um, just what he is. Do- doesn't feel like he's got anything in, in his in his personal life to to hide from anyone. And I like the idea of going behind the scenes at training. I think Premier League clubs are a lot less keen on that. I think. <laughs> I think. Um, I mean, there are talk about access and security issues and things like that. And obviously, sure. you 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 do see in in other countries sometimes you hear about fans storming the training ground and if they're angry after a bad performance on a monday or something like that don't you yeah so i think there's there's sadly a million reasons why why we're not gonna see that here much as i would quite like it i i know some clubs lower down have have tried it before but that's when you maybe get 20 or 30 people turning up and not a thousand and if you see a london colony now when when you're going to a a press conference even the the gaggle of people forlornly hoping for an autograph is is big enough so imagine if training was on um but it but it would lift the bonnet you would you would i think see that these guys don't just turn up and jog around and play a bit of five aside for for half an hour um and 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 that there's serious work going on and that it lasts for a lot longer than you see and i think you know there's only so much clubs can do isn't there i mean I have my reservations about all or nothing generally because it is very manicured. Obviously, sure. there's not, not too many hard edges and that kind of thing. But at least it does show you those extra bits, those extra just tiny little moments. Even like you know, Bakayo Saka talking about Thorpe Park, things like that. Sure, sort yeah. of, you, you and I can can relate to, but it can only go go so far. Obviously, but, but I think, yeah. Shaq has got a good point, and I think those of us who deal with him fairly often would concur that you know he's he's screwed up a few times in the past. We all know that, and I think he knows it too. But there's an honest pro in there, and again, he's he's the great survivor of, of this dressing room, isn't he? I think it was only Holding and Bellerin from, from his first season. Now Bellerin's on his way out, and Holding is barely going to start if we're yeah. honest. And there's Granit Xhaka every week, and I think this will continue to be the case playing in central midfield. So you don't do that, especially for for Arteta, given all the purges he's made in the last two years <laughs> by being a wrong end, do you? No, I think, that's, I think we know that at this point. Um, I mean, he's... I find him a fascinating character because he has at times absolutely infuriated me with some of the stuff that he's done on the pitch and you go oh come on will you just you know come on and at the same time I feel like he's been hard done by in equal measure with some of the decisions that have gone against him you know the if that was Granit Xhaka trope is a trope but you know it's sort of based in reality because he does seem to get punished a little more harshly but you know from what we can glean uh, from interviews like the one that you've done um 
I think he did one for the Players Tribune, which was really good. It was like a there was a written interview, but there was maybe like a 30, 30 minute uh, video piece with it as well, which is well worth watching. And the bits and pieces we can see from from all or nothing, like you can see why he's a really popular guy in the dressing room, why he's a big character, why the young players, you know, are, are look up to him, and as you say, why he. Why he's still getting picked week in, week out. Why he got picked every week by Arsene Wenger. Why he got picked every week by Unai Emery. Whatever, you know, issues people might have with those particular coaches. Um, you know, they know what they're doing. Um, and look, the the more cynical would say, maybe it's because there isn't quite the competition in his position. Um, but at the same time, he is, he's just such an interesting guy, I think. And, uh, you know, I sort of grown to, to like him a lot more over the last uh, year or so in particular. And certainly w- what you see from the Amazon series, uh, I think he's a, he's a good character to have around. Yeah. And what maybe wasn't obvious from all of the iterations of the interview we did with him the other week was that he had Aaron Ramsdale sitting next to him for a lot of it. And, I think I, um, I, I think Ramsdale said, can't remember the exact quote, but it was virtually unprompted. That like you know, yeah, he's he's one of our leaders, one of one of our, one of our captains. This is is mm. exactly how we see him. And okay, that's that's a bit of a cliche, a bit of a trope, but but Ramsdale has walked walked through that door is a signing that a lot of people had doubts about, and a young and not not that experienced Premier League keeper. And Jacku is instantly mm. in one of the totems, one of the touchstones who he identified. Binding it all together, and um, and I think yeah, I think he's he. There is no doubting that he's an incredibly popular figure around the club and around the training ground and in the dressing room. It will be interesting to see in a year's time mm. where he's playing and where Zinchenko's playing, for example. It'll be interesting to see how that midfield position evolves. But but even now, I think we can see that on the pitch if we're talking, he. He may he moves the ball a bit quicker maybe than he used to. I think we've seen a bit of improvement on that front, and and it's had to be because he's remained in in a side that where you're demanded to play at such a tempo mm. and so quickly, and that was seen as a big problem for him. I think, especially up to a year or two ago, I think he has evolved and got better, and he'll always have a ceiling. And again, I am interested to see if Zinchenko eventually ends up taking that position, but I think we got to say that the many rehabilitations of Granite Xhaka have ultimately <laughs> turned out in a not-too-awful way. Yeah, the many rehabilitations of Granite Sounds like a great novel. I'll leave you, uh, I'll leave you to get started on that one, Nick. As always, great to talk to you. <laughs> Cheers, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed to Nick. You can find him on Twitter at NickAames82, at NickAames82. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Now, I don't know if you remember, but during the height of the pandemic, during lockdown and all that kind of stuff, we... um. We put a thing together on the site called Arse Biz, which was like a collection of businesses run by Arsenal fans. And people could go. They're all categorized. You can still look at them. It's on the site. It's arsebiz.arseblog.com. And you can look through all of them. Um, you know, there's people who do copywriting, art, jewelry, journalism, marketing, printing, all kinds of stuff in there. Um, and there's a whole collection of Arsenal fan-run businesses uh, for you to check out if you want to have a look and if you want to if you want to use them if you want to keep the money swirling around the Gooner family. But I was sad um, to discover that somebody who was involved in that um, passed away recently. Noah McMillan, he was uh, an artist and illustrator. And to uh, just remember, Noah, I've got a print of his to give away. It's a really cool Thierry Henry illustration. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. So if you don't win, you can always buy one if you would like to. Uh, but the uh, the link is there. Check it out. And we've got one of these to give away in whatever size the winner wants uh, the print to be in. It goes from extra small to large. So whatever suits you best. We'll give one of these away uh, to remember Noah and my condolences to all his family and friends. Um, check it out. All you've got to do to enter is just uh, send me an email to competition at arsblog.com. Competition at arsblog.com. Just say you want to enter the competition. Uh, you don't have to answer a question or anything like that. And um, and that's it. I'll pick a winner next week and I'll announce it on the show uh, on Friday. And just before we get on with the next bit, also a big rest in peace to our friend Gordon Matthews, 
who was a big part of the Arsblog community for many years and who passed away uh, earlier this summer. He was uh, an absolute gent, well-loved by everybody who met him. Uh, my condolences to Jane. And uh, we will remember Bald, as he was known, with huge, huge fondness and lots of love. And uh, may he rest in peace. Right, let's get on with the show. And as I said to you a bit earlier, we're going to talk stats, and there's nobody better to talk about stats than Rob from Opta, also known as Orbino. Hi there. Hi there. How are you doing? Good. Thanks very much. Um, you work for Opta, and everybody will associate Opta with football stats, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But can you just maybe give us a, a sort of a broad view on uh, sort of the, the involvement in other sports, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Okay, so um, basically when I joined the company, which was back at the tail end of the last century, um, we were pretty much only collecting Premier League data at that point. Um, But the company has kind of expanded over the years to venture into other sports, uh, such as cricket and rugby, either by developing its own collection systems or through acquisition of businesses. And then about three years ago, we, we merged with a company called Stats in uh, the US, who are one of the uh, historical collectors of uh, you know, data around the four big US sports and the college sports. Um, so we pretty much cover all the main sports these days. Um, you know, in some sports in more depth than others, uh, you know, we'll dig right deep down into performance data uh, as we do with with football, uh, some at a more peripheral level, uh, where it's you know much more top level. So let's uh, talk about it from a football perspective, though, because that's what m- most people will be interested in here. And so let's say I've got my StatZone app um, on my iPad or whatever, and people will use the various websites and and everything else. I'm really curious as to sort of the process of how a game is recorded from a statistical point of view because there's so much information like a long ball a short pass a square pass you know uh, you, we get the graphics uh, which immediately tell us you know where the where the pass was made from where it went to whether it was successful etc cetera, etc cetera. so let's imagine you know you're doing an arsenal game not you personally but opta are doing an arsenal game who's doing it and how exactly are they doing it and how many are involved in in one game Okay, so there are actually multiple ways of collecting the data and we use them for different purposes. So, uh, you know, we have people in the grounds all over the world that are collecting data, which we call fast data, basically for betting purposes. So obviously when a team looks like they're going to score a goal, you know, we can obviously close markets, etc. for the the bookies. So we we do have a level of collection of data within the grounds. Um, The more traditional stuff that you're probably used to seeing on my Twitter feed and that's out there really on places like Who Scored or Scorecore, as you mentioned, things like the StatZone app. That's done basically off video feeds from our office. And uh, we have two operators, one assigned to each team. And then they basically collect every event that occurs in in a game. Now, that amounts to somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 events per match. And it's the typical things that you would expect, like saves and shots and tackles Mm. and clearances and, of course, all passes. But there's a whole raft of additional qualifiers that we collect. So for every pass, we, you know, we can uh, log the XY coordinates of where the pass was made from and where it goes to. So we can actually calculate whether that was a forward pass or a sideways pass or a backwards pass. But also that we add a layer of um, 
analysis on top of that. So we might say, well, that's a chipped pass or that's actually a cross rather than a pass uh, or, you know, that's a layoff or it's a through ball. So there's a lot of sort of um, slightly more subjective interpretations of the data that's overlaid on that to kind of give some more context around that data. And then obviously, uh, once that data is collected, as I say, you've got two, two guys um, collecting one for each team and they'll be working alongside each other, double checking everything. So for every tackle, you know, there's a player that's dispossessed for every shot that's saved, you know, that obviously has to have a save matched up against it, etc. So there's lots of double checks to make sure the data is as accurate as possible. But also now, uh, you know, over the last few years, technology is obviously increasing massively. Uh, we have a tracking system, which obviously you, you'd be aware of, like monitoring uh, players' distance run uh, and, uh, you know, where, how many sprints they're doing and that kind of thing. Um, and then we're sort of moving into another uh, sort of era of data collection where there'll be an overlay on top of the data that we're already collecting using computer vision, which is effectively the broadcast streams coming into, you know, a normal broadcast feed, but you'll be able to sort of give some context around what's actually happening on the pitch using computer technology from, you know, our offices, as opposed to having have those cameras actually at the grounds and in you know situated in each of the four corners of the pitch and on the halfway line to sort of try and catch every um everything that's happening on the pitch so basically the technology is enhancing and enabling the amount of data that we can collect and obviously you know with um the the event data you're only collecting the on ball actions but with tracking and the computer vision data that's going forward you'll start to be able to look at more off the ball things and start to perhaps quantify you know the capabilities of defenders based on their positioning uh, or you know the, the ability of a striker to pull a defense out of shape by off the ball runs so there's uh yeah you know obviously i've been i've been in the business of getting on for 25 years now and there's been huge changes but there those changes are coming at a much more rapid pace and and there will be a lot more data you know available for analysis and available for clubs to use in the future uh, out of the new data sets that this this new technology is creating wow i mean the, the fact that there's only two guys i've got a, like a vision in my head of you remember the old telephone operators just going trying to patch things through because so much happens in a game and it happens so quickly it's like trying to assign the event to a player you know i i guess there are some automated things or or, or c computer systems which allow them to do it but it's making my brain hurt uh, to yeah try. they're basically guys that are incredibly good at gaming you know it's the kind of hand-eye coordination oh, there wow. are certain things which are really important in collecting data uh, which you, you kind of um, don't always think about. You know, you think uh, good eye, hand-eye coordination, et cetera, keyboard skills or whatever. Um, but obviously understanding football is a classic one. But player recognition yeah. is a really important one because you've got to do it so quickly. You kind of need to, you know, know the players. So there's a lot of the analysts are assigned to individual teams and they'll work and revise those teams so that they know them inside out. And, you know, I remember when we were doing this, we did some analysis on something like for every 50 people that came through the door we'd get an analyst one analyst that maybe lasted sort of six months or more uh you know the the training part of it really does sort of weed out those people aren't you know aren't actually capable of doing it and it's not just enough 
to love football and know football, you know, you kind of have to have all these other skills yeah. to be able to collect that amount of data in that short uh, period of time. Would would uh, one analyst, for example, work on one team throughout a season primarily, or is it a quest, uh, case that, look, you, you get the game you're assigned and you need to be up to speed with... Like, if you asked me to, you know, do Brentford right now mm. i'd just i'd be no i don't know who half those guys are uh, but you know arsenal would obviously be very different for me so is there a specialization element to that or is it you know you it's a broad church you have to be able to do it across you know the the leagues that you're working on yeah i mean ideally uh, people get assigned you know to the same teams and they do sort of revision of that but obviously you know you can't cater for illness sometimes so sure. there, there are certain teams which everybody knows you know you, you could probably do man united or liverpool you know that a lot of those squads are pretty settled and you watch a lot of their games so you could probably do those teams it's it's the sort of slightly more obscure ones where we send our analysts uh you know a couple of dvds to watch uh, and uh, work out over the summer so that they can try to you know identify the key players in key positions and then you know most teams do play a reasonably settled formation so you, you kind of also have that ability to anticipate and say you know he that's the left back because he's in the left back position um and then you know we we obviously then rigorously check post-match and each analyst is kind of graded uh you know and and given their scores so they know how they've performed and how many changes might need to have been made you know after after the event so uh and obviously if there's any issues then there's additional training as a result of that um so yeah there's a lot of kind of qa off the back of it as well the the amount of data that we get as like the general public is is enormous now it is um quite detailed i mean some sites do it in a basic way other sites go into it in a very uh very detailed very granular way um but i know that there is let's say more available uh, behind the scenes to clubs and you know if if you um yeah, if you if you pay for more data, you can get more data, et cetera, et cetera. But do you work closely with clubs or do clubs do a lot of this stuff themselves or would they use your data as, let's say, a platform for their own stuff? How, how does that work? Yeah, again, it's a bit of both. You know, you have certain clubs who have their own team of analysts and data scientists and they take our data and then they are obviously looking for uh, to analyze that to kind of identify some kind of competitive advantage spot something that you know no one else has done i mean you've obviously sort of seen the the increase in number of set piece coaches and things like that which is where sure. teams feel that they can get a little bit of an edge over their rivals um so a, a lot of teams will take that in-house and they'll create their own things and you know it's very hush hush and uh, they don't share it at all so a, a lot of their models are you know proprietary and then you know there are also clubs uh, who are a lot less sophisticated so we will sell them a tool which basically you know displays the data uh it's easy to use with drop down menus and graphics which you know indicate some basic tactical things um or you know allow you to filter players by whatever you might be looking for you know position and whether they're an attacking player or, or defensive player for example if you're looking for a fullback um and then you know you can sort of filter them down by age and uh you know uh, value so that you can you know only pick players that are um within your price range and that kind of thing so they'll, they'll use the data more in that as a kind of um you know a, a shortcut tool basically for sure. scouting so instead of like having to watch five thousand left backs you know you can narrow it down to the 10 or 11 that you think are worth viewing that are fit within your specifications and then you can scout those you know no one pretends that data is going to give you the answers 
uh, you know, it's part of the process. And in some cases, it's a bigger part of the process. In, in, in others, it's a much smaller part. But, um, you know, pretty much every club is kind of using data in some small way at some some level. But obviously, you know, it's, it's a lot more sophisticated in, in certain clubs than it in, is in others. I mean, you talked about developments and you've been in the business, as you said, for, what, 25 years. So obviously things have changed from a technological perspective. uh, And I think there's a wider acceptance of the use of data in football. Like, um, you know, when I started Arsblog, you you didn't really find stats anywhere. You might see something uh, pop up on Sky Sports during a game or whatever. But, you know, more and more... Um, stats is informing the way that we think about football the way perhaps that you know you can watch a game and have an idea that a player has maybe not played particularly well and when you go look at the stats it doesn't really bear out what you think you've seen maybe you know uh, trying to find that balance between stats and data is always really interesting I think but I mean do you see or believe that you know stats has had a very um, tangible impact on the way the game is being played now, not even when it comes to recruitment, but the way teams are setting up, the way that they can, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, they can uh, prepare for opposition based on information that you know is now available to them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we're seeing perhaps uh, differences in the way that football um, just is because of the use of data. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm partly to blame for that. You know, I, I had a passion for uh, data and, and trying to understand the game and trying to use data to explain things. So I used to write for some of the Arsenal fanzines, but rather than it just being a bit of a rant about what I thought about this player or that player, I tried to you know use data to kind of make the points and to back them up. And when I started at Opta, you know, it was like almost like the dream job, really, uh, for me, sort of coming together, working in sport, but also having that data to play about with. You know, previously you didn't have access to it and I'm very passionate about it and you know I love evangelizing about it and (laughs) talking to people about it um, as you can see from my Twitter feed Uh, and you know so I I kind of made it you know my my passion to to share that with other people and to show them how you could get the most out of data so when we started we were working with a couple of you know match day programs and and a couple of regional newspapers Um, you know I'd worked in advertising prior to that and, and when I came in it was clear that a lot of the data that was kind of being put out there was in sort of big Excel tables and it was just inaccessible to ordinary football fans. Mm. So we started to kind of, you know, cut it up into bite-sized little pieces, either a little ranking table where you could see who was top or who was bottom, uh, you know, who's in the top five or a little head-to-head so you have some context. Uh, you know, this player might be better than that player or this team is stronger in this area than, than that area. And then also, you know, what we kind of termed the Opta Fact, which is kind of what you would see on, on my Twitter feed or Opta Joe and or hear commentators use today. Yeah. So it's finding that interesting nugget and then sharing it with people. And we didn't have a platform, obviously, to share it. So you're kind of reliant on the broadcasters or the newspapers or uh, who are, or social media to kind of share that kind of content. And that's really how it's developed. And of course, as it's become more popular, um, then people have seen that there's money to be made in it. So they will then buy data on mass. I always use the example of um, like a touch map. So if you look at a touch map in uh, a typical match, there are maybe like 28 uh, players that, that are on the pitch. 
um, more these days with the extra substitutions perhaps but you know actually of touch maps very few of them tell an interesting story you know it's like oh interesting look the left back is in the left back position it doesn't really tell you anything but sometimes you can find something which a touch map or a heat map or an average formation graphic shows you and tells or helps to tell a, a story mm. and we would we would pick these things out and we'd send them through to broadcasters and they were like well we can't get them on screen but when you do it often enough you can show the value of having that graphic on hand in your graphics package to bring up whenever you need it sure. so that encouraged them to basically then take our data feeds and once you have the data feeds you can build these graphics and they're there basically for you to bring on screen whenever you need it the classic one is the penalties i mean i, I presented that to sky you know, back in about 2004, 2005 or whatever. And, and their, their approach was, well, you know, we don't have time to show that. We've got to show replays of the foul and, you know, maybe the player getting sent off and the arguments around the referee. Sure. So we kind of like created a graphic, which, you know, for the last five penalties. And we sort of, you know, dummied it up and sort of said, you know, maybe you could use it here. And, you know, when, when Sky actually first used it, they asked us to send a graphic through and then the penalty taker actually got taken off. So when the team won a penalty, they still couldn't use the graphic. So we then sort of said, look, you know, really what you need is every player's last five penalties so that when it happens, it doesn't matter who's on the pitch, you know, yeah. you can bring it back. So, so they did, they, they had started using it because occasionally, you know, the graphic would work out. But then they, they basically integrated the feed. And now, of course, pretty much every penalty you see, uh, you know, you get to see the last five penalties that, that, that a player's taken and, and it's just become normalised. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, if you can find a good editorial story to tell, either with data or a graphic generator from the data, then people start to understand the value of the data in, in helping to tell those stories and explain it to ordinary fans. And then, you know, it's about using it at the right time in the right way to, uh, you know, make the most out of it. I mean, that that's sort of interesting because my next question was going to be like, what would be your biggest frustration as a stats evangelist? You know, you see developments, you see, for example, XG has become a thing over the last number of years. And, you know, I, I think there's a cohort of football fans who will go, I could stick XG up your hole. I'm not interested in that. He should have put the he should have scored. He was clean through, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, what are the frustrations that you feel personally, you know, without having to use the terrible phrase, nobody is saying stats tell you the whole story. If you can yeah. do that. <laughs> It, it's you know I, I think it can get frustrating um especially if you're incredibly passionate about it and you know that it can work you know there's there's always going to be naysayers people out there that you know don't believe in it and it's really interesting where over the years you know a lot of those people in very high profile positions you know former players etc have been very negative about it and then you know a couple of years later when they find something which the data backs up a story that they're trying to tell, then they're you know only too happy to use it. <laughs> so of course that's that's great. You know when you, when you get somebody who's who's basically negative about it to kind of take it on board. And, and I think also you know people um, you know tend to use data without really thinking about it. You know we all sort of say. Uh, he should have scored from there, kind of, for example. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And we all have a sense, you know, around um, other things like that where we, we kind of think, oh, yeah, this team is really bad um, from set pieces. And, you know, what data helps you to do is to actually quantify that. You know, you, you watch Arsenal, but, you know, maybe other teams are actually worse and we're actually pretty good. Um, but, you know, you're able to illustrate that and you're also able to illustrate changes in performance. So the whole thing about, you know, Arsenal basically... 
uh, went from one season of being the worst team at defending set pieces a few years ago to hiring a set piece coach and actually becoming the best team mm. at defending from set pieces. And of course, you use data to to illustrate that story quite perfectly. Now, a pundit or a player or a coach might be able to spot that. But like I said, it's much easier to get that across to a wider audience mm. as fact rather than opinion if you've got the data to back it up. So that's really, you know, the, the best way I guess we have of approaching it is is to kind of, you know, take it on the chin and then, you know, try to prove people wrong. There are different companies, um, I guess, that do stats as well. So, I mean, one of the things people might say is that, um, why are there fluctuations or differences in in certain stats uh, models or whatever they are? Um, you know, if you're dealing with events, as you called them earlier on, why would there be fluctuations between one and another? So different data providers have different definitions, um, and also they uh, might collect different levels of data. So. Some providers, for example, wouldn't make the nuances between passes and crosses and, you know, defensive clearances. They would just say this is, you know, a ball that's gone from, from one player to another part of the pitch. It was either successful or unsuccessful. We used to have this thing with UEFA all the time. They basically never had a difference of definition between all of those things. Mm. So their total pass numbers were always much higher and the passing accuracy was always much lower because, you know, defensive clearances were basically included. I, I think they've changed it now, but that, that was, you know, one of the things back in the day. So, you know, it, around shots... Uh, and things like that there's still an element of subjectivity you know mm. we, we talk a lot about the cross shot uh, if you look on any, any put, a, put a search in for uh, Opta and uh, shots and stuff like that a lot of people bet on them these days so if, a, if somebody loses a bet you know they're very they're straight on to sort of say why wasn't that classified as one so sure. a cross come shot could be given or it might not be given by by different data providers but the other thing in different models obviously is you know people who calculate them use different uh, factors uh, within the calculation of the model. So some expected goals models, for example, if we go back to that metric, you know, they, they only use the very basic data of the position of the shot. So yeah. it doesn't really make, you know, much nuance between that and, uh, you know, um, the, 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 shot, the, the shot details that a company like ourselves would, would actually collect. But also, there's like the nuance simply of the data set that you used. So, if I if I took our model for example, there are half a million shots in our in our model uh, to calculate the average chance of scoring from kind of each of these different scenarios. Now, if within that half a million shots, then you know there are more penalties are scored than in the previous iteration of the model where you also used half a million shots, then the expected goals value of a uh, um, a penalty is going to change sure. because you know it, it goes from 78% conversion rate to 80% conversion rate, and that's the thing. It, you know, it, it, it unfortunately that's the way of the data. It's basically what you put into it, but also the data that you're actually using to to collect those models. So that's why you might sort of see differences between different models. Um, you know, there are lots of arguments about what is of value and what isn't of value in terms of the calculation of it. Um, but I'm not a statistician or a data scientist, so you know, it's it's harder for me to comment on you know the accuracy of of those kind of things. Um, but obviously, we created the first ever um, expected goals model, and you know, it, it it's really been a transformative. Uh, you know, sort of a metric in terms of, you know, creating it, it made people start to think about the value of data that you could 
measure something and it's actually changed the way that teams uh, think about scoring goals. Um, I mean, I've just put together a few numbers here to sort of uh, you know, illustrate. Okay. You know, we, okay. showed, we showed that if you try a shot from outside the box, then on average you'll score only about uh, one out of every 50. So it's an expected goals value of 0.02. Um, but, you know, on, on average it's a one in 50. Mm. Um, so as clubs came to understand that, you know, they've basically told players to stop shooting so much from long range and be patient to engineer a chance that's closer to goal. So if you took 2011-12 when the first model was created and then last season, it's seen the number of shots from outside the area drop from about 5,000 to about 3,500. So it's about two-thirds of what it used to be. 5, the number of shots from inside the area has largely stayed the same. It's you know, about a couple of hundred difference. Um, but the conversion rate of chances has actually increased by about 10%. So instead of one in 10 chances being scored, it's now closer to one in nine. And, you know, th- th- those changes didn't happen like, you know, in isolation. Sure. It's been a gradual change over the years. And if I was able to show a table here uh, illustrating <laughs> that, you can see it, you know, actually going down more and more and more as things like expected goals have become more commonplace within clubs. Our, and, you know, our, as sorry. more metrics are discovered and embraced, you know, people will start to use them more. And if, the, you know, if your results improve off the back of it, then you'll again see more adoption. Mm. And as I say, clubs are always looking for that competitive advantage. And, uh, you know, it, it, it then depends on, you know, do they want to do them, the, the, the analysis themselves and hire their own, you know, really clever people to calculate their own models to identify their own levels of competitive advantage? Or do they want to take the publicly available ones and then, you know, you, you choose somebody from a reputable source that, you you know, you think that their model is, is potentially the best to, uh, uh, you know, to, to use in terms of, you know, calculating your, uh, your, um, your decision making at the club. So 5,000, there were 5,000 shots. Uh, it's gone down to 3,500 shots. So we're getting fewer shots from distance. I mean, is yeah. that... Uh, the same when it comes to um, actual goals from distance as well. Do you, you don't happen to have that stat handy, do you? How many more goals or le- fewer goals are scored? Uh, good question. I can run that off the query tool if you just give me two seconds. Not the interesting problem. thing is, is that number of goals overall in 2011-12 was 1,066. And in the season we were talking about, it was 1,071. So again, you know, overall goals. Yeah. Uh, hasn't actually changed in terms of sort of goals from outside the box if you just give me a couple of seconds yeah no problem this is where the magic happens <laughs> people always wonder how I managed to turn these things out so quickly it's uh, basically we have an online query tool which I can dip into so yeah so from outside the box in 2011-12 there were 180 goals from outside the box and last season there were 144 so the proportion and the number you know has dipped and it really sort of dipped quite significantly after the initial integration of expected goals because literally we were able to put a number on it. We were able to, you know, previously the attitude was, you know, you can't win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket. So you might as well shoot. Whereas now we're sort of saying, look, yeah. if, if you shoot from here, 49 times out of 50, you're just basically giving the ball away. So, you know, you'd be better off being more patient. And it's why you see the style of play that teams do, mm. you know, trying to create, um, you know, better opportunities. And we've seen that in other sports. I mean, there was a really great example. Um, a guy called Kirk Goldsbury um, published a, a while back. 
around basketball. So 20 years ago, they had this graphic of where the most common shots were taken from. And they're all over the place, you know, some from long, some from short, some in the middle range. And then they did like the, the 200 most common shots, uh, you know, today. And basically they're all either right underneath the basket or they're from three point range. And they use data to basically identify that if you were taking these shots from, you know, mid range, then the risk reward was was outweighed. You might as well take the long, you know, take a step back and take yeah. a longer range shot because you'd ultimately in the long run earn more points. And so you've got this amazing graphic where you've got people, you know, shooting from long range and shooting from under, and then no one shoots. And if you do the same with football, you it, it's not quite so pronounced. It's obviously over a shorter period, but you can definitely see, you know, that the the average distance of shots has reduced quite substantially uh, since the introduction of an expected goals model. Very interesting that the way it's impacted the game. Um, we had a few questions from our uh, uh, listeners. Uh, one on Discord here, I think it's Daniel Refat, who said, I was curious what Urbino thinks about a lot of these new modern advanced metrics such as XG, which we've uh, spoken about, XA and XT, and whether he sees them becoming as widely used as the more traditional stats. And, and again, some of these seem to be a little bit, uh, they, they can fluctuate in terms of um, what they give you. But do you think these are just going to become more and more commonplace? Yeah, I think, you know, expected goals is an interesting one because it's the only one that's really so far gone mainstream. But you can see advanced metrics used out there, but not necessarily be aware of it. I don't know if you've sort of seen some of the momentum graphics uh, that we've created, which, you know, will appear on Premier League programming around the world, Mm. Uh, you know, and and, uh, you'll probably see some of it on social if you're following Opta Analyst. Um, but, you know, that basically shows who's dominating at particular times and you can kind of see, uh, you know, teams scoring against the run of play or when they're dominating or you can see the impact of a substitution changing, uh, you know, the way that teams play or the impact of a goal. You know, we all have seen Arsenal score and then basically decide not to attack for another uh, the rest of the game. So, you know, you can kind of indicate that off of these sort of momentum graphics. But the the, um, the metric that's used to kind of calculate that is is called possession value. And it's a little bit similar to kind of expected threat, which you mentioned there. And what you do is you kind of like just tally up the values of those things to show how attacking and how threatening a team are in terms of how much are they trying to go forward and, you know, create and score goals mm. and how much are they kind of potentially you know, if they're winning, holding back and just, you know, holding what you what you have sort of thing. So you can kind of use those metrics and people understand the momentum of a game, but they probably you wouldn't know what possession value was unless they were really interested in data and sort of, you know, go into it in a bit more depth. So for me, again, from my advertising background, it's not, you know, always like, okay, well, we need to get this this complex model out there and this complex metric, and then we have to explain what that metric is. And, you know, you can find a way of using it to tell a story in a graphical way, mm. and people don't even know that they're consuming, uh, you know, consuming data at that point. Simon King asks, is there a particular stat which infuriates you, knowing <laughs> that knowing that analysts, professional analysts, pundits, etc., coaches and players must be fully aware of it? Yeah, I don't think there's so much a stat, um, but it's more like misuse of things. I, I see a lot of people, for example, using stats like you know, tackles one percentage or duels one percentage in match summaries of player after a game. Mm. Um, and you know what? The, what they'll refer to is is, is kind of like the hundred percent. They've won a hundred percent of them. Um, so often, you know, in, in some cases, 
that might be they've just had one tackle. I mean, I think you know six is six tackles is a lot of tackles in a particular match, um, and you know that that can be a bit misleading because obviously if you if you made two tackles and you've won one, mm. you've got a fifty percent rate, which doesn't sound as good as a hundred percent rate if you've if you've won two. So the, the tackle success rate is always a little bit misleading. Plus, also I think people don't really understand the definition of it, and it's it's probably a and a historical opta problem of not describing it very well. The one and the loss bit actually relates to possession. So every tackle, you win the ball. That is the definition of a tackle. The lost and the one bit is what happens to possession. So if I, if you've got the ball and I come in and I tackle you and the ball goes to a teammate or I retain possession, then that's a tackle one. Uh, whereas a tackle lost is I come in, I win the ball from you, but it you know squirts thirty yards back down the pitch to a defender. Sure. So it means you've, you've won the tackle, but you lost possession. So it's it's a bit frustrating, but that's quite a difficult one to sort of change the perception of it because people sort of see you know tackles won and percentage, and they immediately assume that they kind of lost a load of tackles, but actually every tackle is a tackle won. Okay, that's interesting. Um... Here's one from Joe Yeti. He said, I'd like to know Orbino's most random or most interesting or indeed favourite Arsenal stat. Yeah, where do I start? I mean, there's too <laughs> many to mention over the years. I mean, in general, I think, for me, finding anything that no one else has spotted is, is good. You know, I love being the first person to, to know something and then sharing it. Um, a few random ones, I'm, much as I wasn't a fan of Manuel El Munia, he actually saved five of the six penalties he faced in the Premier League at the Emirates. Um, there was one this season, quirky coincidences, like when we played, we actually, funnily enough, when we last played Leicester and Gabriel Magalash and Gabriel Martinelli and Gabriel Paulista, uh, basically, uh, as that game was being played, had all played exactly 46 Premier League games. So it was a bit random wow. and it was kind of personal to me because my, my son is called Gabriel. So <laughs> it's a, a sort of like, you know, a li- little bit of wishing he was uh, on 46 appearances as well. Um, I quite enjoy updating the average distance of Eddie Nketiah's goals uh, every time he scores, <laughs> which stands at about five yards at the moment. I, just, yeah, um, I see people get quite exercised about that. It's like, oh, it's yeah. almost as if you're being critical. And it's not. Exactly. It's just like, yeah. it's quite fun. I like it. Yeah, you know what social's like. People are always sure. going to read stuff into to what I push push out. But hey, um, I think um, my, probably one of my favourites, which actually isn't Arsenal-related, sort of maybe tenuously, it was just before um, Solskjaer was appointed full-time manager at Man United. So we were about to play them, and expected goals clearly showed that they were massively overachieving. You know, they scored far more goals and conceded far fewer than expected goals said they should have from the chances that they created. So after publishing this on on my Twitter account, because we were just about to play them on the Sunday, um, it got a lot of pushback from people online and, you know, quite a few journalists. But it was also like one of those stories which really became a tipping point for XG. It it created a bit of debate. People started, you know, talking about it, you know, debating whether the story itself was correct or, you know, but also the value of the metric itself. And it raised awareness of of that. And then, you know, we use the metric to basically state that the overperformance couldn't continue. And, you know, it's great when predictions come correct, um, which is what expected goals allows you to do. You know, if things don't change, then things are going to kind of regress to the mean or go back to, you know, to what, what normality is. Um, and that's exactly what happened. You know, United's results started to reflect their XG num- numbers much more closely. They weren't overperforming them. And their results and performance declined 
And, you know, it basically helped convert quite a number of naysayers because we were able to say, look, you know, this is what we predicted. This is what happened. And people say, oh, you know, maybe there's some value in it after all. Yeah. And, and just finally, we have this one um, because you mentioned social media and, mm. and you know, sometimes stats are really interesting and they're, um, they're informative and they're positive. But sometimes, you know, when you go through, let's say, a difficult period as a football club, um, you know, stats can reflect that things haven't been going quite as well. And, I, you know, obviously there are um, there are stats that could be applied to different games. Like, you know, I don't know how long it is um, since we last won against Liverpool at Anfield. Uh, but, you know, you could do a stat to say it has been 3,000 years since Arsenal won at Anfield. And that's the truth. But kind of nobody wants to hear it in a way. You know, there are, well, some people don't want to hear it. Um, Tater Murray says, when you tweet your more depressing facts and stats, are you doing so with a hope it's like a cosmic reverse jinx? <laughs> yeah, well, there is a, there's a little bit of that. I mean, I, I do get, and I can't win, to be perfectly honest. If, if I post negative things, uh, you know, or, or, or st- I wouldn't say negative things, I, I post data which doesn't show Arsenal in a positive light, uh, you know, which, which ultimately is basically factual. I, I try not to, to add too much of my own view to it. Sometimes sure. I, I will, but, you know, most, most of it's just presenting the, the facts that I find. And, that, and the interesting ones that I find sometimes as I say, show Arsenal in a bad light, sometimes they show them in a good light. Um, you know, whatever I post, if it's a positive one, I get people saying, you know, you're, you're a, a Arsene Wenger fan or, you know, Mikel Arteta fan or whatever. Sure. Um, whatever those phrases are. Is it Arteta sexual or something? That they call <laughs> those guys. Um, or, you know, or, or I, I sort of, so, so people from that perspective will take and see what they want. And particularly yeah. around the negative ones, people will say, oh yeah, you're, you're always really negative. You're posting really negative ones. But the reality is our performances over the last few years haven't been as good as they were in the past. And, you know, we have set high standards. So once we start to use those things, um, but sometimes it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, obviously, you know, you find quirky little things like players are having a good record scoring against, and you put it up and people think you're sort of tempting fate. But there's a little bit of like criticism around negative stats, uh, you know, or the positive ones. Those, those people will come and say, you know, uh, you're, you know, you're jinxing things. Don't post positive stats. <laughs> so you kind of can't win, really. So uh, you, you got to, as you know, on social, you got to take the rough with the smooth. And, you know, that's what the mute and block buttons are for <laughs> from time to time. So. I won't ask. I won't ask you for your stats on how many you've muted and blocked down the years. Um, but look, this has been really fascinating. Really appreciate your time, Rob. Uh, thanks a million, and uh, keep up the great work. No problem. Good to speak to you. Take care. That was Orbino talking stats, and you know where to find him. He's on Twitter at Orbino at Orbino. Right. That is just about that for this week's show. I will tell you that there is a brand new episode of Waffle over on Patreon for our Patreon members, in which James and I talk about anything and everything except Arsenal. Um, So there's a brand new one of those over there. We will look ahead more to the Leicester game on Patreon as well, our usual preview podcast with Lewis Ambrose. That'll be coming up for you on Friday afternoon. If you're not on Patreon, it's a fiver a month. It helps support everything that we do here on Arsblog. And of course, you also get exclusive content that's not available to everyone else. And James and I will be around on Sunday with an Arscast Extra. 
hopefully chatting about a very goodly Saturday afternoon in the heat at the Emirates Stadium and a first home win of the season. Let's keep fingers crossed for that. As always, thank you very much indeed for being here. Uh, Much appreciated. Thank you for downloading, sharing, listening, and all the rest of it. We will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. There's trouble in the Arsenal dressing room. Every time a goal is scored, Portuguese fullback Cedric is the first man on the scene and always in the pictures. Mikel Arteta wants more from his players, more variety, and he's challenging them to get there first. I don't accept them, these standards. It's nowhere near. Nowhere near. Because I see it. In training, when I lose a duel, I'm upset because that's the fucking standard. There's nowhere near, guys. It's fucking shit. I'm telling you, shit.